The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. I need you, Lord, I need you. Well, we sing that in absolute truth and assurance. That is a statement of fact. That is not just an emotional song. That is a statement of fact. We need him. Amen? Now imagine singing that song right now as a Christian in Iraq. Imagine singing that song right now knowing that it could cost you a bullet to the back of your head at any moment. And I was home Tuesday. Tuesday was, is a day off here for the staff. And so I was sitting at home Tuesday and my wife and kids were gone to school and, and I was just watching the news when the news broke of the next reporter that had been killed and of the growing threat going, over there, going on over there with regards to ISIS. And uh, just got on the internet and was looking around some more. And you know, we see that video of that guy the stills from it, I couldn't bear to watch such a thing, but the pictures, the images, and that stirs our heart and that grabs us. But I'll tell you guys, you don't have to Google very far to find out that is a drop in the bucket compared to what's happening over there every single day. Not just to reporters, but to Christians from all over the place and to native Christians there in Iraq. And the scriptures tell us that we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. So I think it would be good for us to even pause right now in the luxury and comfort, praise God for it, of this assembly where we can gather together and worship and learn of Jesus together, but to pray for our very dear family, our brothers and sisters overseas who face a threat we can't even imagine. Will you just join me in that as we begin? God, they need you. Lord, our brothers and sisters are in pain and in fear And under threat, they're in prison, they're in captivity, and in many cases, their bodies are in ditches. Lord, there is an evil on this earth that we cannot possibly imagine, but there is a goodness that can triumph over it. Lord, you hold the hearts of kings in your hands. I pray you would turn the kings of this world to the situation that is going on there, and that, Lord, you would rise up whatever's necessary, Lord, to defend and rescue our dear brothers and sisters. I pray, God, you would give them peace and strength by your spirit in the face of such persecution. And God, more importantly, we pray that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus, and liberate all of your people, that you would put an end to such death and destruction. There would be no more babies in hospitals and no more children being taught terror, no more mothers and fathers being shot for their beliefs. No more bodies in ditches or in trucks, but God, you would reign and you would renew, that you would judge and you would restore. That's our prayer, Lord. Lord, we're thankful for the freedom you've given us. It is beyond comparison, the freedom and the blessing you have given us to be born and to live in this great nation. And so God, we are so thankful for your provision there. I pray, God, you would protect this nation from ever going down a road that could ever end in such a way. And I pray, God, you would equip your church to be missionaries, not just in places like that, but in our very neighborhoods here. Because, Lord, in reality, we know that the final solution to all of these things is not politics. It is not a military movement. It is the return of Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that will solve this once and for all. 
And so we pray, God, that we would be ambassadors for your name, as today's text clearly states. So God, will you empower and teach your people this morning? May your spirit speak through me in spite of me. May you protect us from the wisdom of men. And may you exalt your word in our hearts. So Lord, as we always pray, and in accordance with your scripture, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O our King and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, guys, grab your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to finish out 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this week. I do want to give you a quick heads up. We're getting kind of a late start today, so I'm going to have to get rolling on this. But I do want to give you a quick heads up. Um, Two weeks from today, we will be taking a slight and short break from going through 2 Corinthians to spend some time talking about our church and our mission and our direction, the core values that God has given us as a church, the things that that we value, that we see in Scripture, that direct our church, that navigate or that through which we navigate decisions and calling and ministries and mission here as a church. We're going to spend a couple of weeks, it'll probably take at least two weeks to go through that, but I think it'll be really beneficial. There's a lot of new faces, and, and it's a lot of these are things we haven't looked at in a long time, and that's going to lead us into talking about some really significant challenges that churches are facing even in our own homeland today. Some of you saw the news this week, um, all California state colleges now have de-recognized any faith-based organizations on their campus. So no longer can a group like uh, InterVarsity, for example, meet on a California campus with their stamp of approval because it requires leadership to sign on to a statement of faith. Um, There's issues like that that are growing rapidly in our culture. And so we're going to spend some time talking about who we are and who we are in light of what's going on out there. And that'll start two weeks from today. So make sure you're here to be a part of that. And we have some really exciting news along some of those things as well. So um, I'll, I'll be, I'm anxious to be able to spend some time there. Um, today, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to finish the chapter. So let's read together beginning in verse 11. Actually, start in verse 10, even though we covered it last week. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, and not what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. And if we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. 
and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a guy from Uganda, as I told you guys, we have a mission trip coming up pretty soon into Uganda, so I'm always, my interest is always piqued, if you will, when I come across stories that, that regard the nation of Uganda. I have a huge heart for the Ugandan people, love them dearly. And history tells us that some years ago there was a man, he was an evangelist, became an evangelist, named John Wilson. Um, he started out just as an oil worker there, working within um, the oil, the government contracts, all kinds of stuff like that, and carved out quite a successful niche for himself and did really well. But at a certain point, a missionary from America came to Uganda, and this man heard the gospel, and he was saved, and he was radically changed. And he went on from that point forward to become an evangelist. He would even refer to himself as a missionary to his own country. He went throughout the nation of Uganda and was just evangelizing, preaching the gospel to anyone who would listen. Well, his notoriety as a preacher and as an evangelist, as well as, as his, uh, his business acumen and his wealth that he had uh, accrued, really kind of put him on the map. And so the Ugandan government recognized him and they sought him out for a role, for a specific job. And the job that they offered him is probably the second most uh, desired or most uh, uh, looked up to position that you could possibly have in the entire nation. And actually, some would say it's the best. If the first is president of Uganda, to be the person in charge and to have that sort of power and that sort of um, uh, uh, luxury in the way that they live compared to many Ugandans, then the second position would be this. He was offered the position to be ambassador to the United States of America. That is easily the second most desired job in the entire nation of Uganda, if not the first. Now, an ambassador is an amazing opportunity. It's a pretty big responsibility. If you're an ambassador, you, you're from this country, you work under the authority of this country, you represent the values of this country, the mission of this country, and the leadership of this country, but you're living in a different country, still under your home nation's authority. I mean, we understand, right, that in many places, ambassadors in other nations are even immune to the local law where they are because they live with a certain granted immunity under the legality or the legal system of the country they come from. So you are someone who is there to represent the mission, the values, the goals of your homeland under their authority, under their title. And in America, it's an even amazing opportunity for someone from a place like Uganda because you move to America and you live in Embassy Row. I mean, you live in luxury. You live, especially compared to what Ugandans are used to, it's unbelievable the difference. You're, you've got it made. And even then, you'd go, well, it's a temporary position. Yes, but your family is blessed beyond belief. The job pays pretty well. Your kids get access to education that people in Uganda could only dream of. And then because of the very fact that you live in the neighborhood with all of these other ambassadors in the United States, you've built connections all over the world. So even if your position as ambassador is temporary, you can pretty much get a job doing whatever you want anywhere after that. It's an incredible opportunity. 
And so the president comes to John Wilson and says, we would like to appoint you to be our new ambassador to the most powerful nation in the world. We're going to make you the ambassador to the United States. Well, what was his response? He said this, sir, I am honored that you would offer me this position, but you see, I am already serving as ambassador to the king of kings. It is the highest office in all the land, and I'm afraid I cannot step down from this office to take the one that you have just offered me. Ooh, that's a good quote. I don't know if I'd say the same thing, but that's a good quote. May God give us all such grace. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's making just this argument. This passage is where Paul states the reality of the fact that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ in this world. We live under the authority and under the legal and moral code of a king in a different place. As missionaries, if you will, in this land, representing its values, its goals, and its leadership on mission for the king. This is what we are, ambassadors for Christ. And Paul makes this statement here. Remember now, he's writing to the Corinthian people to defend his calling and to defend who he is. People have come in after he was last there and thrown him under the bus. They've tried to say he's disqualified, that he's not really a good leader, that, that God's not really in his court. I mean, even his suffering shows that clearly he's not anointed by God. And so Paul is writing in part to defend his calling as an apostle and an ambassador. And he states here that this is his calling and our calling, ambassadors. He says, we are ambassadors of Christ. Now, this last chapter, there's probably three or four verses I read when I was just going through that text that you guys have heard before. It's a remarkable chapter of scripture that is filled with some incredibly deep nuggets. We could spend months digging through this text and not even come close to the bottoms, the depths of, of what is all here in this passage. But I believe that, that right now, the best thing that I can do to serve you, the best thing that we can do in light of this text, is to kind of keep it simple and to understand two really important things that Paul is putting out for us to understand. And it's in regards to our motives as ambassadors. You see, most Ugandans, if they were to get the job as ambassador to the United States, their motive is wealth and comfort and opportunity. But Paul says we are ambassadors of Christ. And, and we look at Christians in Iraq. We look at Christians in a lot of places, almost anywhere other than America, and we see that usually being an ambassador of Christ doesn't come with a whole lot of worldly comforts. So what are our motives? And motives are important because we understand this as well. Being a Christian is more than just doing the right thing, Right? Nod, I'm not alone on this, right? Being a Christian is more than just doing the right thing. You can do the right thing and not be saved, not be a believer, not have a heart that is after God. I mean, for goodness sakes, in the scriptures, we even see places where the demons obey what Jesus tells them to do, but they're not repenting. They're not following. They're obeying because they kind of have to, right? So motives become really, really important. They make a huge difference in what we do, all the difference in the world, really. And in this particular text, Paul details for us clearly two huge motivations for ambassadors for Jesus Christ. For all of us as believers in Jesus. And it's not like, well, he's called to be an ambassador, I'm not. All. Everybody say all. All. Say with me, I am, I am. an ambassador for Christ. 
cool, I'm glad we're all here together and in agreement. So this is the idea. What we are now going to look at in this text is two huge motivations for us as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And the first one is not exactly one we're super comfortable with, but it's what he starts verse 11 out with. It's the fear of the Lord. He says in verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. And when the word therefore is there, it's connecting it to what he just said. And if you remember from last week, we looked at this reality that all of us at some point do stand before God. Everyone will give account for their lives. And we end up before the very king of kings giving account for who we are. We stand before God. Therefore, understanding that reality, we move, he says, or knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The fear of the Lord. Christian ambassadors are motivated by the fear of the Lord. Now, you may be thinking right now, well, surely, though, go get that disclaimer in quick, Jeff, because I'm used to that disclaimer that when you talk about the fear of the Lord, we got to neuter it a little bit. we got to dumb it down and go, well, but it's, it's not the kind of fear. It's not like afraid. I can remember when I was growing up in the Baptist church back in North Carolina, they taught us about fear. We memorized Bible verses about the fear of the Lord. But then you would always kind of come in afterwards and go, no, it doesn't mean that we're, it's not like afraid. It means like respect. That's what it actually means. The fear of the Lord is, it's respect, it's reverence. That's what it is, like a, like a son who is respectful to his father. That's what that means when you're talking about the fear of the Lord, right? Yeah. God is our father, amen? He's our good and heavenly father, amen? And we give reverence and honor to our father, right? But there's a good place to understand just a healthy dose of plain old fear. Let, let me explain this. He is our loving father, but he is the king. He is the king of all kings. Now, you go, come on, man, are you serious? Yeah, R.C. Sproul, for example, is known as one of the more eloquent teachers and writers and authors out there. And maybe one of his best quotes might be his least eloquent. And he said this, it's really simple. He said, look, if you don't fear the Lord, you're nuts. And you go, wait, but you're just talking about respect. You're not just talking about that. No, I'm saying like when you understand the reality of the nature and the span and the might of God, it, it should just by default put just a little bit of fear. Now, if that's making you uncomfortable, you might be sitting there going, no, I don't like this. You better have some Bible verses for this, Jeff. I do. I mean, besides the one that we just read, this is, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, I do. It's a passage that we know really well. Um, we've sung songs regarding it. It's out of the book of Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 6. And let me give you some background on this. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is a man who has been called by God to stand in a nation on earth and represent the interests of God to the people. He's called to be a prophet. And so he's going to go to the people of God, speak the word of God, speak the will of God. He is, if you will, an ambassador for God. He's also in the midst of a nation that has horribly turned its back on God. And he is a godly man. He loves God. He is a believer, a follower of God. He's likely the most righteous man in all of the land. And he has this interaction. It says in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. 
Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So imagine this. Isaiah is taken away in this vision and he finds himself in the very throne room of God. He's in the presence of God. And there in this place, there's these angelic beings, the likes of which if we could see them, I mean, that's enough to just be a little bit of afraid right away, isn't it? Six wings, feet, head, it's flying. I don't know what that is. And here's these angelic beings and as powerful and as impressive and as foreign as they are to what we understand, They are bowing before God and they are screaming out with a voice so loud it is shaking the very foundation of the room. The doors are ready to rattle off. I mean, it is literally shaking the room as they scream, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's like that kind of thunderstorm. There's thunder you hear, but then there's thunder you hear and feel. You know those? And these are voices causing this. I mean, that enough is awe-inspiring. That enough would put a tremble in our knees if it doesn't put us straight to the ground already. But that's not the most important thing in the room. That's not the most impressive thing in the room. They're doing this because of the most impressive thing in the room. Isaiah finds himself in the throne room of God, and there before him in the throne is the Ancient of Days. It's God. Like, he's there. Like, not theoretical, not philosophical, he's there. It says that the train of his robe fills the temple. It's his glory filled the place. That means his essence, the actual weight of who God is, is so heavy and so real and fills that room so much. It's as if it's pressing down on the very air that Isaiah is trying to breathe. There is a heaviness in that room that we can't even imagine. And when Isaiah is in that place, before the presence of God with these angels bowing before him, the walls shaking as they worship him, he becomes acutely aware instantly of two things. The first thing is this, he becomes incredibly aware of how weak he is, how frail he is, how broken and flawed he is. And the second thing, how unbelievably awesome God is. And this man is shaken. This is the most righteous man in the land. This is an ambassador for God to the people of Israel. And he is shaken to his core. And it says, going on in the passage in verse 5, And I said to me, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I am lost also translates, I am ruined. In other words, this. He sees the glory and the majesty and the holiness and the power of God in the throne. He sees these angels bowed in worship and he is aware that he himself has no chance to stand on his own two feet before such a holy God. 
He understands how broken he is. He understands how far he has fallen by his sin. He understands when he sees the glory of God, he remembers all of the times he has sinned against God, that he has rebelled against God, that he has tried to put himself into a throne of his own life instead of God. And now he's standing there in front of him, just like Paul talks about in Corinthians. And he says, I'm ruined. In other words, this is the end. I have no hope. I am lost. I am ruined. I am undone, some translations say. Now, that doesn't sound like just plain old respect to me. That sounds like a man who has been struck with awe and fear and, dare I say, even terror at the realization of how powerful and mighty God is. That sounds like fear standing there in the courtroom of the king and understanding that God is great and massive and, yes, as the scriptures even declare, terrible. Now, it doesn't mean terrible in terms of sinful and bad and we have, he's mean and he's just going to be terrible to us. It means that he subdues all the earth under his feet, that at the very spoken word, sin has no shot against him, that he is incredibly powerful. And Isaiah's response is, woe to me, I am wounded. Now look, our God is a gracious and loving Father. Amen? But He is the King. And not for one second should we ever forget how great and mighty and amazing God is. When we look at the scriptures and we see the times that the presence of God comes down and we see the reactions of people when they're faced with this, we should understand that's just describing what's going to happen to us as well. That we will be shaken to the core when we realize he is so much greater than we could possibly even fathom. And then the realization that we stand before him ourselves. I assure you, no one's going to stand there and go, I got this. I bet you're glad to see me, God. But that's what sometimes, honest to goodness, it's what sometimes we in the church think and propagate. Do you guys see some of the news this week? Those of you that follow some of the church world out there. Biggest church in our nation, the Osteens in Houston. And if you don't email me later saying I shouldn't talk about them, they are fair game. The Osteens down in Houston. So this week, this is the quote that came from the pulpit by Victoria Osteen as she stood next to her husband, Joel. She said this, I just want to encourage every one of us to realize when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it, but we're doing it for ourselves, Because God takes pleasure when we're happy. That's the thing that gives him the greatest joy. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God really. You're doing it for yourself. Because that's what makes God happy. Amen? To which we respond, no! Absolutely not. Can you imagine standing in the throne room that Isaiah describes and saying such a thing? I guarantee you the reaction will be different. He is God. He is the king of all kings. He is more mighty than we can possibly imagine. And yes, we do not. Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, he is our father. And we don't have to fear God in the way others do. We do not have to fear that he is going to utterly destroy us. We do not have to fear that he is going to disown us or kick us to the curb or remove himself from us or any of those things. And yet we need to still understand he is not to be trifled with. 
He is the almighty God of the entire universe. And before us, I don't care how righteous any of us are, none of us can stand before him. He is God. And I'm telling you right now, it would be a great thing for churches all over this land to rediscover a good, healthy dose of the reality of the fear of the Lord. Just the understanding that that God is God and that we are not. It would affect every area of our lives. The fear of, the God, uh, the fear of God reflect, affects our relationships one with another. Ephesians 5 says that we're to submit to one another out of fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7, we'll get to in just two chapters. He says, let us perfect holiness through the fear of God. And Proverbs multiple times says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, if you're looking for wisdom and you're looking to to gain in knowledge, he says in Proverbs 1, the place to start is with a good, healthy trembling of the knees and to realize who God is and who we are in light of that. He is God, and we are not. And we understand who he is in his majesty. Who in the world are we to say no to his calling on our lives? Can you imagine? Who could, how could we possibly do that? Paul says, fear of the Lord is a healthy and necessary motivation for an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Now, that might leave some of us a little uneasy. Come on, Jeff, you can't do this, man. Don't turn us into one of those bully churches. I'm begging you. Okay, no slick hair and spinning globe, but come on, man. Well, here's the the reality of it. Fear alone is not enough, okay? Demons fear God. The Bible says they believe in God and they even shudder at his name. In the scriptures, when demons came into the presence of Jesus, they're freaking out every time. There's clear fear that is given. In fact, they say to him, they're like, are you here to destroy us now? So like they know they're toast. They're just worried about when. So there's no like, maybe we'll win. No, they know that they're toast. They're like, it's not today. Is there, are you, I don't think, it, that wasn't on my calendar today. But this idea that they're going to be destroyed, that's just a given. There's fear. But that's not enough fear to lead to repentance. That fear alone doesn't lead to change. That fear alone, fear alone is not enough to make us able, competent, and faithful ambassadors to Christ, okay? But if you don't understand the fear of the Lord, you will not possibly be able to really grasp the reality of the second motivation that Paul brings in. We need to understand how incredibly holy and powerful and huge and absolutely awesome God is. Because until we understand that, we will never fully understand the magnitude of the second motivation that Paul brings to our attention, and that is the love of Christ. It says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Another way of translating that first part, the love of Christ controls us, compels us, or my favorite translation to that, the love of Christ gives us no choice. The love of Christ gives the ambassador of Jesus no choice but to live for him and to live for others. And let me help you understand exactly what I mean by that and why I think that's a great translation for this. Let's go back to our story with, with Isaiah. 
Isaiah is in the throne room. He is undone. He is consumed with the fear of the Lord. This all-consuming fire is before him. He's undone. Woe is me. I am a sinner. I am a man of unclean lips. He thinks he is toast. I'm ruined. And then verse 6 says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Imagine that. Now, I don't know what the coal, we're not going to get into why coal and all that kind of stuff. Don't worry about that part. Just the reality of you're standing there before God and you have never been more aware of all your flaws in your life and you have never been more aware of the majesty and the power of God in all your life and you're standing there and you are absolutely certain you are toast. You're done. You are dead. And then all of a sudden he says, your sins are forgiven. Your guilt is taken away. All of your sin is atoned for. You can stand here. Can you imagine that? With your knees still knocking, still aware of who you are, of what you've done, of all the times that we have rebelled against God, disregarded his word. He was on the throne the whole time, and yet we choose to ignore it over and over. Most of the time, even not even choosing to think that he's there, but now he's there. And suddenly he says, you're forgiven. Your guilt, it's gone. Your sin, it's atoned for. Not because you did anything. You did nothing but stand there and shake. And yet, by grace, God comes and says, you are forgiven. That is incredible. Please, someone say amen that that is incredible. Come on, that is incredible. But then look what happens next. Then Isaiah hears a voice, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Just picture that. Put yourself in the story. You're standing there before God. You know you're toast, and then suddenly out of nowhere, you're just forgiven. Just like that, you're just forgiven. It's, it's all gone. All the things that cause you such fear and such horror are gone, and you're standing there amongst these beings before the very Almighty God, and then God's like, all right, let's see. I need to send somebody to deliver a message. Who could I get? Hmm, is there anyone maybe in the room who I could? Of course it's Isaiah, right? Who would say, wouldn't you say that? Jeff, you're forgiven. On to the next portion of business. I have a message. I need somebody to go down there and share a message in Medford, Oregon and tell people that they're forgiven. Of course it's me. Of course it's you. I mean, would you not stand there? Oh, um, I, I'm pretty sure I could do this. How could I not in light of the grace that has just been shown me? In light of the fact that God has just chosen to pass over my sins, which are great. And, and now he wants me on his team? Isaiah reacts in the only way he could. He had no choice. The love and grace of God compels him. And he says, here am I, send me. Guys, that's the commentary for 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because Paul goes on to say, read it again actually, verse 14 he says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised." 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, verse 17, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And we have the understanding that we, we know who we are, and we have sinned against God countless times. We have sinned against gods in ways we can't even imagine. We, we have sinned over and over. We have served ourselves more than we've served others. We've served ourselves more than we've served God. We've chased after false idol after false idol, seeking pleasure and fulfillment in sex, in money, in career, in prestige. We have tried to get all of these different things in the world and allow them to control our lives. We'll bow before that and give our whole lives to finding that and achieving that. And that'll be what fulfills us. And that'll be what brings us joy. And that's how we'll make a name for ourselves. And we have done this over and over and put our hope in a million other things. And we've done it in the face of a God who sits on that throne, who has spoke all things into existence. And yet we know that in spite of her sin, he, he didn't just take a piece of coal but he sent his son, and that Jesus Christ, God himself, would set all that glory aside and become like us, become in in this weak frame with skint knees and bruises and flus, would go through life perfectly in ways that we never could, would go to the cross on our behalf, and on his shoulders went all that guilt. On his shoulders went all that shame. On his shoulders went all of that sin so that he could then turn and look at you and I, putting all that sin on him as it says, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's not just that he passed over our sins, but then he declares us righteous as if we deserve to stand before God. That is unbelievable. And even more than that, he says, no, 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 it's more than that, Jeff. You're my son. You're my son, He has adopted us into his family and made us joint heirs with Jesus Christ. How can we possibly deserve such a thing? Answer, we don't. That's how good he is. See, you have to understand the fear of God first to really understand how amazingly glorified he is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we have no shot at standing before this God. And yet he loves us so much he would sacrifice himself. And then because of that, everything changes. Everything changes after that. Number one, I'm a new creation. You're a new creation. We don't always feel like it, but the scriptures promise it. You are now a child of God. You're a saint. You're no longer identified by your sin anymore. You're identified by your standing with him. You're a new creation. Number two, we don't see the world the same way anymore. Verse 16 From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We used to see black versus white, American versus Iraqi, 
Christian versus Arab. We used to see all these different distinctions, men, women, Oregon, California, duck, beaver, whatever the case may be. All these classifications for all these different people. But in reality, what it all boils down to is it's as simple as this. It's the redeemed children of God and people who desperately need the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. That's it. It's those two. And so when we see everyone else in the world, it's not about looking down our nose anymore. We understand we should be there, but by grace we have been taken from this category and placed into the land of the living and adopted into the family of God. That's unbelievable. We see the world differently, and we're an ambassador for Christ. Just think about that. That we stand in the place of the risen Savior and plead for the lives of people around us in his place. Can you imagine? What an honor and what a responsibility that we stand and plead that others would be reconciled to God. And can, it, can we just, can we lean on the word plead? It's not about we will argue people into the kingdom. We will out-apologetics them into the kingdom. We, no, we plead. I'm begging you. God is real. He is powerful, and he is the God of all things on this earth. And unless you are reconciled to him, your end is grim and painful, and that all-consuming fire will consume you. That's our plea. You go, that just doesn't sound like some loving God to me. No, but think of it this way. If an invading army comes and the victory is imminent, the land they're coming to attack, they are grossly outnumbered. The, the, the native land has no shot at withholding the army that's coming. Who's the one that goes and pleads for peace? It's not the conquering army. It's the one that's going down that comes out and says, we surrender, let's work out peace, you're going to destroy us. But that's not how it is with God. God is the all-consuming fire, but he's the one pleading with us, be reconciled. I love you. My son died for you. I created you. Be reconciled to me. That is the plea of God to the people in this room today. And that is the call on the people in this room to everyone else around there today. Our job is to make known the name of God and to plea that they would be reconciled to him. And if we fail in that area, nothing else matters. That's our mission. Elders, leaders in the church, hold this church to this. That if we fail in the mission to make great his name so that we can instead make great our name, then we fail. If we build an amazing church and grow in number, but we're not out there actually pleading with people to be reconciled to God, we fail. That our job is to be ambassadors for Christ and to plead that people would be reconciled to him. That's what we're called to do. What a great God we serve. Amen. Will you guys stand with me? Sam's going to come up. And we're going to close in worship. But I'm begging you. Be reconciled to God. He is an all-consuming fire. And he is the king of heaven and earth. And every single one of us is guilty before him. But he's good. Amen? He's good. And he loves us. And he wants to extend his love for us. And he invites us to be reconciled to him. 
You say, well, it sounds like I need to do that. How do I do that? We are reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. We understand our failure, we repent of our sins, and we put our faith in Jesus Christ that his blood would cover us, that his work on the cross is the work that pays the admission into sin and the price for all of our sins. We trust him and we follow him as Lord. It's as simple as that. But Paul's going to go on to say, as the passage continues into chapter 6, he says this, Working together with him, then, we appeal to you. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And then he says this, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And the sad reality is, is there will come a day when the grace of God, that, that period and that patience of God that he is extending, waiting for people to be reconciled to him, that day will end. And if you are apart from the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, you are undone. You are ruined. But Jesus Christ has gone through so much for our sake. Please don't receive that grace in vain. Please give your heart to him. Please give your life. I'm, I'm pleading with you. This is not fairy tales. We're not playing church when we do this on Sundays. The King of Kings is real and he's coming. Be, I'm begging you, reconciled to God. There's going to be some men and women, our huddle leaders and our elders are going to be in the back of the sanctuary as we close in worship. If you let something as silly as pride keep you from this, please don't do that. Please come to them. Please receive prayer. Allow us to come alongside you, to point you to the scriptures, to invite you into the family of God. I'm begging you as an ambassador for Christ, called by him to stand in his place today and beg you, be reconciled to God. Because time is short. Amen? For the rest of us, man, you have great reason to worship the king right now. Because you were Isaiah. You were toast. And then he just says, oh, you're not toast. You're my son. You're my boy. You're my girl. What an amazing gift it is. May we worship him in that reality. Amen? Let's bow your heads and close your eyes. God, we just thank you for this opportunity to worship you, to see your majesty and your grandeur in your word. Lord, we repent of times that we have walked and turned away from you. We ask for your grace and mercy, which you promised to give, Lord. I pray, Lord, that the people in this room that have not given their lives to you, Lord, will Satan be bound, God. I pray that nothing could keep them from you. They would give their life to you, that they would come, receive prayer, and enter the family of God. For today is the day of salvation. Lord, for others who maybe have just enough religion in them to not realize their need, may we repent of our works. May we repent of our own arrogance or our own religion and may we give our hearts to you as well. And Lord, to the redeemed people of God that are in this room, the saved children of Christ, Lord, I pray that you would just be glorified and exalted as we sing in grateful thanks and worship to you. In Jesus' name, as we sing, come to the back, receive prayer. Today is the day of salvation.